Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So it's not real often that people get an entire chapter of one of my books named after them, but uh, our next guest does and did The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why uh, Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. Uh, my newest book in the Hidden History series has a chapter titled with uh, Wendell Potter's name, Good Man and a Bad Job. He is the president of the Center for Health and Democracy. He is the president of Business Leaders for Healthcare Transformation. He's the founder of Tarbell. He's the author of two books about the incredibly bizarre state of our uh, privatized for-profit health insurance industry, uh, Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take. Uh, Wendell Potter is his Twitter handle. Wendell, welcome back to the program. What's the uh, best website for people to track down the work you're doing here? You can find me at WendellPotter.com and also CenterForHealthAndDemocracy.org. And thank you, Tom. And thanks so much for including me in your book. I'm so honored. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, you've you lived through hell. I mean, you know, and I and I hope I characterize that in the book. I mean, you just went through hell as a senior executive at one of these health insurance companies. Uh, you know, struggling with your conscience and and the horrors that you were seeing all around you. So, what I wanted to talk to you about today: this, we finally passed a law saying that hospitals have to publish this uh, prized secret, this complete list of the prices that they negotiate with private insurance. And for example, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, a colonoscopy costs uh, 1400 bucks if you have Cigna. It costs $2,100 if you have Aetna. If you have no insurance at all, it costs $782. It's like, what the hell is going on here, Wendell? Tell us about this. Well, as I've said many times, the insurance industry knows one thing, and they focus on that, and that is how to make as much profit as they possibly can at our expense. Uh, this shows that they are completely incapable of really negotiating favorable rates with, with hospitals and hospital systems because of the secrecy involved. And they and the hospitals are very protective of that secrecy, secrecy because it allows them to get away with this highway robbery that we're seeing. It's just outrageous, and as you noted, you can get a procedure and pay for it out of your own pocket with cash and do better than presenting your insurance card in many cases. It's just ludicrous, and the nation's employers absolutely should be outraged by this. We all should be. Policymakers should be as well, too. All that we need to get everybody up in arms is that this system doesn't work for anybody anymore except insurance companies and the shareholders. 
Yeah. Now, there are two pieces to this. The hospitals and the Republican Party, number one, didn't want people to be able to compare these prices. But then secondly, the whole sales pitch that the GOP makes is, well, you know, if you can compare medical prices, then when somebody has a heart attack and they're thinking of going to, you know, picking one of the nearby hospitals, they'll call around and fi figure out which hospital has uh, the, the, the best uh, price on having a heart attack treated, the lowest cost for open heart surgery, uh, the best results, you know, before they dial 911 for the ambulance, which seems to make no sense to me whatsoever. But speak to this. How did we end up with this? Well, it is based on the Republican Party's position that all we need really is transparency for the free market to work. And of course, you have to have price transparency for any element of our capitalistic society to function appropriately. You have nothing anywhere close to that. And even when Congress passes laws, when the federal government says to hospitals, you got, and, and to insurance companies, you have to disclose this, they don't care. Many of them are flouting that requirement and not doing it. Others just assume that there are going to be no consequences for the public to see these wide variations. And uh, that's why this keeps going on. First of all, you certainly cannot call when you're a victim of an accident or suffering from the symptoms of a heart attack. You're not going to call around and check to see where you can get the best deal. That doesn't happen. So that in itself is, is foolish thinking. It seems to me, Wendell Potter, that the that the notion of the commons is, you know, ever since Reagan put Bill Bennett in charge of the education department in the in, you know, our federal government and we stopped teaching civics in the United States, mm. I think you could stop the average person who is under 50 and say, what is the commons? And they'd give you a blank stare. They have no idea. They would. But, you know, yeah. the bottom line of the commons is it's the stuff where fundamentally you have no choice. Right. The commons is the stuff where if you if your house is on fire, you want the fire department. If you're being robbed, you want the police department. If you uh, need water in your home, you need the water company. If you need sewage coming out of your home, you need the sewage company. If you need electricity, you need electricity coming into your house. These are the things where the choice is just not even a rational option you right. just you know you and and so if it's going to be provided to everybody and it's going to be provided equally to everybody then it should be considered part of the commons and by definition governments are created to administer the commons and yes. and it seems to me that and i think the example of the heart attack that that you were just referring to and and that i was uh, referencing is like the, probably you know writ large the biggest example of this but you could take it all the way down to a broken leg or something that that they're really this idea of choice in medicine is vastly overrated um, outside of just you know picking your doctor and going in and getting a physical every year because when you're having a crisis and not all medicine obviously is crisis driven but when you're having a crisis that's not the moment that you stop and, and say i need to make choices that's the moment right. at which you say i need to get help right now and all right. of that and that's why the united states is literally the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care system and doesn't define health care as a right rather than a privilege can you speak to that well you're exactly right we alone in the developed world have a system like this in which we let insurance companies and big hospital systems hide behind secrecy and essentially call the shots and 
uh, pick our pockets as a consequence, as we're seeing from this reporting. Uh, it's not new. I mean, we've seen this kind of reporting before. The policymakers look at it and typically just turn the other way and say, well, that's just the way it is. That's the free market at work. It does not work. It is an example of market failure. Uh, and you're exactly right, too, your reference to uh, the fact that most of our schools don't even ta- teach civics anymore. We don't teach uh, critical thinking skills. Uh, and so consequently, we have a, a, a very unequipped population to even uh, begin to make uh, heads or tails of, of what's happening in our healthcare system. It's, it's just ludicrous. So you were a senior executive with one of the top uh, three insurance companies in the United States. You've seen this from the inside. You've seen the healthcare system. You've also seen the healthcare system, you know, as all of us have as a consumer of healthcare in the United States. And I know that you've traveled around the world and you're familiar with how healthcare plays out in other countries. In your opinion, in your very well-educated opinion, Wendell Potter, what should we be doing here in the United States? We should be doing what Maryland is doing. Maryland stands out as the one state that seems to have figured out how you can address this particular situation. In Maryland, hospitals are paid the same thing for every procedure, uh, that, uh, regardless of whether the payer is Medicare or uh, an insurance company or out of pocket. Uh, right. It's called global budgeting, uh, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. Now, in the bills to establish a Medicare for all system, uh, at least on the House side, in Pramila J- Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal's bill, she calls for that. But it's already something that's proven to work and works very well. Uh, and the folks in Maryland, uh, including uh, policymakers and employers and hospital executives will attest to the fact that that works, and you don't have this kind of a situation like you have at uh, uh, Boston, you know, at, at Mass General or or these other hospitals that the the the, the New York Times is highlighting uh, in other parts of the country. Even Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts, it's it's ridiculous how wide the 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 the, the, the variance is in terms of how much uh, hospitals will charge insurance companies and, and their patients. The other thing I want to keep in mind is that patients need to care about this because most of us are now in high deductible plans. And our out-of-pocket obligations are tied to what the hospitals charge or what the uh, insurers have negotiated with, uh, with those hospital systems. So uh, we were, that's just a yet another way that insurance companies are picking our pocket but making us pay more for care, and it's based on uh, that, those negotiated rates, which can be just outrageously high, much more than another insurance company has negotiated. Should we just, you know, say, you know, okay, health insurance companies, if you want to serve, you know, a, a super high-end audience like you do in some other countries where, you know, a, a wealthy person can buy essentially supplemental health insurance so that if they right. end up in the hospital, they end up with a private suite, or if they're out of, out of country, they get flown in by, you know, private jet, um, you know, or they've got a chef preparing their meals. But, but uh, basically, that's it. That's the only kind of health insurance you can provide, because all the rest of us are going to go with a system like Canada has, where everybody has Medicare in Canada, yeah. uh, regardless yeah. of age. Is, is that the way to go? To, do you think Canada is the best example for us? I think Canada is the best example, but uh, Canada implemented that many years ago, more you know, half a century ago. It would be very difficult for us to uh, copy them entirely. 
I think what you're describing could work best, and it's a system that the U.K. has, uh, which is something we might want to consider. They do have socialized medicine, but your point about being able to buy insurance if you've got the means and want to do it. Uh, I used to work for Humana when Humana had hospitals in London. Humana Hospital Wellington was, was one of the hospitals where I would visit. And sure enough, you'd get a very fine room. Uh, and Beef Wellington, if you if you if, <laughs> if, if you can if you can uh, uh, if your diet would allow that. Uh, in fact, I had Beef Wellington with the, uh, the CEO of that hospital. That's that's an example. And I do think that because we have so many you know f- fair number of wealthy people in this country who hold all almost all power, that might be what we wind up with. It's just. Some means that if you're rich enough, uh, you can buy insurance for a private room in Beef Wellington. Right. There, there you go. You can have your Beef Wellington, and the rest of us can have health insurance. Right. Wendell Potter, uh, WendellPotter.com. Uh, you can tweet him at Wendell Potter. Wendell, uh, and also uh, Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take. His two books are, are just must-reads, absolute must-reads. Wendell, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you. And your books are too, Tom. Thank, thank, thank you, so you much. Wendell. Great talking with you. This yeah. is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Stick around. Hey, Tom. How's it going? Good. What's on your mind? Good. Uh, I called you on Friday. I just had a follow-up question. I'm still trying to wrap my head around justification for vaccination for myself. And I was wondering, uh, like, what do you think to deal with the continued push for vaccinations for all Americans, given that the vaccinated and unvaccinated can both spread the uh, Delta variant? You don't Um, get vaccinated, Can, to be incapable of spreading the disease. First of all, after five days, vaccinated people are nowhere near as contagious as unvaccinated people who can remain contagious for up to two weeks. So number one, that argument falls apart. But number two, the main reason you get the vaccine is so that you won't die or end up with, uh, you know, being one of that roughly 30% of people who get symptomatic COVID, don't need to be hospitalized and then end up with long-term problems ranging from brain fog to erectile dysfunction. Right. I mean, I just had COVID recently and I feel like you uh, can get it again. Yeah, but doesn't natural immunity last about the same amount of time? As no, you as don't know that. You absolutely don't know that. And in fact, there's there has been no shortage of people who got the original variant and then got alpha and now they're getting delta. Um, this I'd is like, like the common cold. It, it mutates. It mutates, and each mutation is a whole brand new assault on your immune system. Ken, I'm just not going to debate this with you. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you right now, I'm going to take you off the board. Uh, it's a complete waste of my time. Marie in Pipe Creek, Texas. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. First, well, I wanted to say two things. Previously, you were talking about Republicans and the Taliban. I think they should take pictures of Republican senators and congressmen and put AR-15s in their hands and dress them up as Taliban and put it on the cover of time because that would be appropriate. (laughs) It it um, seems. 
second, I work for the... Actually, you don't even have to do that, Marie. I mean, look at some of the pictures that uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert used to get themselves elected. Right there with their well, AR-15s yeah, in front of a wall true. of guns, you know? <laughs> but um, I also worked for the state health department for many years. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a law in Texas that, say, if a child uh, gets tuberculosis or hepatitis A or other diseases that uh, can be passed on to kids, especially in those in the class that they're in, their parents have, by law, have to be notified that these children have been exposed. And not just viruses, it's true of lice as well. Yes, lice uh, especially. And so I wanted parents, especially now that school is starting, to get Greg Abbott in uh, course and see how that goes about them not doing that for COVID. Yeah. Now that the vaccine has been approved in particular, I think you're going to see a whole, you know, the, the screws are going to start tightening. Marie, thank you for the call. I, I agree with you. I completely agree with you. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. With the uh, Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from Healing ADD. Richard Bandler, the founder of neurolinguistic programming, NLP, wrote the foreword for this book. And it's basically a book on NLP as applied to people with ADHD, but it's actually a pretty, pretty good book on NLP, which is actually how I originally wrote it. So we're on chapter eight on page 80, reconstructing the past. Uh, different types of memories, regardless of how anchored in reality or fantasy they may be, are stored in our brains in different ways. These forms of storage involve the five sensory modalities, sight, smell, hearing, taste, and feeling and the subtle gradations of each sense, such as color, brightness, or contrast for the visual modality, for example. These gradations are referred to as sub-modalities. This is true for both adults and children. One of the ways our brain organizes information is according to the way it's stored. Our senses pick up something in the outside world. Say we see an insect fly by. That's an objective thing that we've seen. However, before that image makes its way to our conscious brain, it's processed by other parts of the mind and tweaked and tuned. If it's a bug that frightens us, perhaps a wasp, then the mind sees it as a bigger object and in sharper contrast than it really is. 
Other objects in the picture, the background, buildings, grass, whatever, become more distant, dull, perhaps even less colorful. The mind may increase the volume of the sound associated with the wasp and also attach a feeling to the image, probably a variation on what we might interpret as fear or panic, a feeling felt perhaps in the pit of the stomach or the trembling of the hands. So here's a quick list of some of the submodalities that we commonly use to experience reality and store memory. In the visual field, how do you remember things visually? Color of black and white, contrast, size, bordered or not, moving or still, brightness, graininess, distance from us, associated or disassociated. In other words, do we see the scene as we saw it or do we see ourselves in it? Focus, detail, texture, perspective, dimensionality is a flatter 3D, proportion. That's the visual field. In, in auditory, loudness, tonality, distance, pitch, melody, inflection, location, tempo, duration. Gustatory, uh, salty, sweet, spicy, musty, bitter, familiar, delicate. Olfactory, strong, faint, intermittent, familiar, unique, musty, moist, damp, mildewy. Kinesthetic, the feeling. Hard, soft, cool, warm, sharp, electric, intensity, duration, speed, location. Now here's the amazing part. If you know what modalities and submodalities your mind uses to store a particular type of memory, happy, sad, hopeful, afraid, neutral, whatever kind of memory it is, then you can adjust the memories you have of the past to change their emotional feel. For example, think of something, a memory of something that you did in the recent past, such as brushing your teeth last night. Mentally list the qualities of the submodalities. Your list might look something like mine. I see a still picture in black and white without a lot of contrast or detail. Associated, I see the mirror in the sink, but not myself. No border, 3D, about two feet square, about 20 feet away from me. I can hear the sound of the water running and taste the mint of the toothpaste. If I concentrate on it, I can remember, or imagine remembering, the feeling of the toothbrush on my gum and the smell of the toothpaste. The feelings I associate with the memory are pretty neutral. Boredom might be the best way to describe it. It's something I do every night. Now imagine a control panel just below the image or wherever you'd like it to be, with levers and dials that you can use to change the various submodalities. Reach out and change a few of the submodalities and see how things change. When I move the picture from black and white to color, I suddenly feel curious and interested in the process of brushing my teeth. It seems fascinating. If I turn up the volume, I become uneasy. As I increase the mint taste, I feel more awake. Nobody knows why this works the way it does. One theory is that the brain stores information holographically rather than digitally so that the brain sees its own storage capacity as a three-dimensional space. Because we experience the world through our senses, it makes sense that we could organize the mechanism for storing the information about our experience of the world along sensory lines as well. When something is put into a particular space, it acquires a sensory nature of that space, since sensory signals are how we experience the world. So when a memory is put into the boring category in our brain, it becomes, in my case, everybody's different, but it becomes, for me, black and white still pictures and all the other submodalities I described before. When the submodalities are adjusted and the pictures are turned into a color movie, it doesn't just change the memory. It actually causes us to interconnect with or slide to a different storage place, a physical different storage space in my holographic brain. There's also a concept known as a critical submodality. That's the submodality which has the ability to shift others, probably the primary hook into the place in the brain hologram where the memory is stored. As you're going through the various submodalities, changing each one a bit in one way or another, turning up or down the brightness, the volume, you'll notice that there's generally one particular one. It could be anything from volume to contrast to smell to brightness, anything. It causes the entire picture to change and creates a sudden shift in the feelings associated with that memory. 
that submodality shift is the critical submodality. And once you know what your critical submodalities are, you can do this process much quicker. One of the most common and most powerful critical submodalities is location. When you move a picture from where it is, for example, in front and to the right, about four feet away, to some other place, for example, in front and slightly over your eyes, only a foot away, it often changes dramatically its impact. So it goes from there to talk about how to take memories that bother you or that haunt you even and transform them into things that are simply just who cares memories. The book is Healing ADD, Simple Exercises That Will Change Your Daily Life. And welcome back. So it looks like we are playing with fire with COVID again with the elderly, or maybe not. I mean, this announcement last week that boosters will be available, but you've got to wait until eight months out. This is just absolutely fascinating research. This is uh, by and large coming out of uh, Israel because they were vaccinating people and hitting like a 90% vaccination rate across the country, at least in the non-apartheid part of the Israeli part of Israel, hitting this level way before we did or any other country did. So it's a relatively small country too, which helps. So what they found was that among people age 60 and older, a booster shot offers a four-fold increase in protection after 10 days compared to just two doses. Now, four-fold, that literally means 400% more protection four times as much. This third dose also offers five to six times stronger, five to 600% stronger protection against hospitalization or serious illness. Again, 10 days after you get that booster. Takes a while for your body to respond to it, as, as we know. But this is all people over 60. And my first question when I came across this was, why is it that we're not giving boosters right now? Then I saw a, a report yesterday, and again, this was not, this did not come out of this Israeli study, and so this science is still, uh, debatable is not quite the right word. Let's, let's say not definitive. That if you give a third booster, if you give a third shot too soon after the first two, it really just doesn't do much because the body already has a vigorous immune response mounted. But if you wait until the body's immune response has largely waned, has largely gone away, which appears to be, and not largely, but you know, has, has measurably gone down, and then you give the booster, which seems, the sweet spot for this seems to be seven to nine weeks. Excuse me, months, seven to nine months out. If you give the booster then, then your body is sufficiently not, not immune anymore that your body will launch a whole brand new immune response and develop a whole brand new set of antibodies and give you immunity for another, what, six, eight, nine months, a year? We don't know yet. So it looks like a good You're start. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And on top of that, as we're learning how COVID affects your brain, Welcome back. Geeky Science Part 2, How Does COVID-19 Affect the Brain? 
This is, uh, as Emily Mullen writes over at NationalGeographic.com, a troubling picture emerges. People, this, this is not looking at people who were like, you know, whacked out on the verge of death from COVID, that kind of thing. These are uh, people who only suffered mild infections, they note, she notes, can be plagued with life-altering and sometimes debilitating cognitive deficits, cognitive thinking, the brain. Uh, they tell the story, she tells the story in, in here of Hannah Davis, who uh, contracted COVID back in March of 2020. She was a healthy 32-year-old New Yorker, freelance data scientist and an artist. And she didn't even have a cough or a fever. Her first symptom was that she couldn't read a text message from a friend. She thought she was just tired, but this fuzziness didn't go away with a full night's sleep. More neurological issues followed, Emily Mullen writes. She developed sudden and severe headaches. Her attention span suffered. She couldn't watch TV or play video games. She had trouble concentrating on everyday tasks like cooking. She'd leave a pot on the stove and forget about it until she smelled food burning. She failed to look both ways while crossing the street, narrowly missing traffic. She'd never had any of these issues before coming down with COVID-19. Keep in mind, this is the healthy 32-year-old New Yorker. A year and a half later, Davis can only work a few hours a day, and she never had serious symptoms of COVID, but she did have it. A year and a half later, Davis can only work a few hours a day because of lingering brain fog, short-term memory loss, and other cognitive issues. Davis says, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Your body just feels like it's breaking down. You lose your sense of self. So then there's this uh, giant British study that the BBC uh, is reporting on. 81,000 participants between January and December of 2020, so that's the entire year of last year, took this uh, questionnaire and a cognitive test. Uh, you know, how, how well does your brain work? 81,000 people. 13,000 of them got COVID infections. So they looked at those folks and here's what they say. These individuals, those people who got COVID, had more trouble with reasoning, problem solving, and spatial planning on the test compared to their same age group and educational backgrounds who had not been hospitalized with COVID-19. The difference was similar to the average cognitive decline seen over a 10-year period of aging. One tough round of COVID can age your brain 10 years if this study is to be believed. There are two leading hypotheses as to how this works. The first is that COVID being an inflammatory disease produces an inflammation of the brain, which then diminishes the brain's ability to work properly. This would be sort of like uh, encephalitis, which is a, an inflammation of the lining of the brain. And you know we've seen this, this uh, as the result of a number of brain inflammation diseases and then as a secondary part of this it's possible that this autoimmune response might be provoked which is where the brain starts attacking itself the second explanation they note at national geographic the second explanation for cognitive issues is that covid 19 may restrict blood flow to the brain and deprive it of oxygen now this could be through two different mechanisms one is that because covid can whack the lungs the whole body's getting less blood. For the brain, this is critical. The brain consumes enormous amounts of oxygen compared to other organs in the body. And so the brain just gets oxygen starved and thus lasting damage. 
The other possibility is micro strokes, little tiny you know, blood vessels being clogged up with tiny blood clots that are basically producing the equivalent of strokes. And then they note, this is from a completely different study. This was presented pre-peer review, but for publication at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in July. Scientists presented research showing that hospitalized COVID-19 patients had similar blood biomarkers, similar neurodegeneration, and similar inflammation of the brain compared to those with Alzheimer's disease. They're still waiting for peer review on that one. But uh, bottom line, this is not a disease you want to get, particularly if you're unvaccinated. Okay, let's pick up your phone calls here and continue with our, uh, our conversation. Joseph in Bovey, Minnesota. Hey, Joseph, what's up? Hey, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm, uh, I scheduled my third booster shot for uh, this Wednesday. I've uh, got an all clear from cancer in June, and it's been five months since my second shot of Pfizer. And I'm wondering about this Israeli study because I was psyched at first, and then you're like, if you get it too soon, Maybe it's not that effective. That, that um, was that. I wouldn't worry about that. That 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 is not peer-reviewed research. That is anecdotal research. The the Israeli study is solid. That that you know a third shot for people over sixty. Um, they did not time limit that. They just basically started saying anybody who's over sixty can get a third shot, and it's massively more effective. There is some speculation that if you wait a little longer you'll get a bigger boost in, or maybe it'll just boost you back up to where you were. But that, that research is not peer reviewed, Joseph. I can't offer you medical advice, but if it were me, I would be getting a booster shot the minute it was available to me. And one other comment, uh, my wife's an RN and she works in a long-term care facility and she got hers back in January. And I'm curious why medical workers aren't kind of pushed to the front of the line for this third booster shot too. Yeah, or the third shot, the first booster. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's probably a policy that goes state by state or maybe even hospital by hospital, you know, now that it's fully approved. I'm guessing that you're going to see more and more of that. I'll have to check in with my two kids who are healthcare workers and find out what's going on here. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, I developed a new algorithm that um, based on the, the worldwide population, how many people are getting infected and how long this goes on. And the algorithm predi predicts a variant that comes out that can jump the booster. And um, uh, the results are catastrophic. Uh, it scared the hell out of me. I didn't want to look at it, yeah. to tell you the truth. Yeah. So that's kind of where that's, we're looking that's, at. Right? That's the bad news. And I'm assuming that that would be that that virus would have some significant mutation in the spike protein so it it's not caught by the immune system that's that has been you know sensitized to be uh, triggered by the spike protein um, but if Precisely. that's the case the, the good news is that with these mRNA vaccines they can basically take any random protein and cause your cells to produce an antibody to that protein and make you immune to that protein or at least you know, evoke an immune response to that protein. So if or as the virus mutates, I, I think that we will be able to stay a, maybe a step behind it, but you know, uh, at least this is for the, for the developed world. It's, the real challenge is gonna be in the, in the undeveloped world. And this is why 
you know, going along with our friends over at globaltradewatch.org, we really need this TRIPS waiver. We need to, to, uh, to be able to say to these um, big pharmaceutical companies, you know, you're still going to make money on your patent, but we are going to allow third world countries to manufacture your vaccine. They will pay you a much smaller royalty than you would otherwise make, but you will still make money. Um, uh, because if we don't do that, we're just, we're just setting ourselves up. Uh, Joseph, thank you. Thanks for the information. MJ in Seattle. Hey, MJ, what's up? Hey. I have a lot to say, but the most important thing is what, what happened here in Polsbo, Washington yesterday. Um, a evangelical, a formerly Disciples of Christ church, mega church kind of thing, brought in somebody from the Family Research Council. Oh, geez. Tony um, Perkins's anti-gay group. Uh, Yes, yes, and the thing they advertised it on was that the, the speaker was going to give people the biblical understanding of critical race theory and then and and also LGBTQ issues. There was a an evening uh, event where the um, speaker spoke on the critical race theory, but at the church service, he spoke on mentioned. LGBTQ issues a lot more, and would say things like, well, uh, we know that the best thing we can do for the welfare and, and well-being of children is to make sure that they are in a, a home with a mother and a father. Right. And, and just, you know, the brutality of people who want to love and care for children, their own or maybe their chosen family, their own mm. adopted children. But that are refused that ability through civil. Yeah, uh, this is bigotry, pure and simple, MJ. It's just it's yeah, hatred and, it's, and bigotry. And then it's and it's the Taliban. Well, we had over three hundred people standing on the sidewalks around the church because we they we couldn't get on their property. They had people reminding us that it was private property and we shouldn't right. park or walk across there. But we were on the sidewalks around the, the church. And there were three hundred of us. Wow. During the service, and we could listen to the speaker by streaming. There were two masks in a big, giant auditorium hmm. in there, so n none of us wanted to go in and right. listen. Were you carrying um, signs that said things like "Hate is not a family value"? That's right. That's right. That was really beautiful. We, we dressed up and we waved and smiled at people, and we, you know, we were insisting that separating people, dividing people, putting up barriers, and the us and theming everything, oh, that's them. Mm -hmm. uh, that is antithetical to the founding principles of the United States, which is a civil society. Right. It means you are allowed to worship the way you please, and, and you cannot prejudiced. It's and, also uh, antithetical to the founding principles of Christianity. I mean, the Samaritan that Jesus yeah. helped was a completely different, I'm not sure you could say race, but something close to it. I mean, the Samaritans right. were the outcasts, essentially, of that society at that time. That's correct. So there were a lot of signs that had to do with, we don't recognize your boundaries for love. Yeah. You know, everybody's a neighbor. Yeah. Everybody. So that felt really great in there, and it was really well organized. Lots of people. Yeah, good on you, MJ. Thanks a lot for sharing your story with us. That's, it's, I, I, you know, I'm just astonished that anybody is still inviting Tony Perkins and his hate group 
to come to speak in any church in America. It is, it is so antithetical to the, found, the foundational tenets of Christianity. Whatever happened to love and tolerance? We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Of course, Perkins has been a political hack forever. I mean, you know, he goes back to the to the Reagan administration. We'll be back with more of your calls right after this. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Uh, let's see here. Zeke in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Zeke, what's on your mind? Uh, Tom, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, people, the people who are doing this in Texas are, are what I call Christo-fascists. These are, these are radical Christians who want to have a hands, handmade scale situation. They want a theocracy. And you, sir, don't do us any favor when you use the word conservative to describe these people. These are fascists straight up. And if we cannot name our enemy, we are screwed. On the other hand, they are referred to as conservatives by themselves, by their voters, by the media. And if you don't call them by a name that other people recognize, then how do you identify them? I mean, yes, I agree with you. They're crypto, they're crypto, you know, they're, they're, they're neo-fascists. Uh, they are Christianists. They are not Christians, in my opinion. They're Christianists. But I think it's important to use the language that they are using. I'm, I'll just leave it at that, Zeke. Thanks for the call. Mary in Arlington, Texas. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hey, I want to talk about Bush. First of all, he has not been overseas. He cannot go overseas because he's going to be charged with crimes. You know? That's right. War crimes. Him and Cheney. Yes, exactly. And it's not going to stop. But then again, let's go to the issue here in Texas. You know, talking about abortion. Um, when do these Christian people start um, talking about what sin, you know, sin one, sin two, sin three? There's no such thing. All sins are sins, and God forgives them. And abortion is not considered a bad sin any more than adultery. And our last president 
was very adulterous with 20 women and never got charged. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And he tried to and he tried to talk one of his wives into having an abortion. Yes, um, exactly. There you go. Yeah. What can you say? Yeah. So, you know, what is it we're trying to do? Well, we're very close in here in Texas because they're very close and very flayed when they're having to pass all these laws to turn into a blue state. Yeah. Very, very scared. Very scared. Well, you know, I'm a lot older than y'all. <laughs> I am been through all these things, you know, and lost two daughters and a lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah. But I will say this. I will say this. We are on the road to the right track. I hope so. Right. I hope so. Mary, thank you we, for the call. We need some good cheerleaders. There you go. Good cheerleaders. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the kind call and thoughts. I'm warily optimistic that this is going to be one hell of a wake-up call for women across the United States. We'll see. We'll do it then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one other thing that I wanted to share with you. Uh, a rant at you uh, 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 about a little bit, if I may, and that is 900,000 dead people, which is, by the way, a vast undercount. The number of people who died in our war in Afghanistan, in George Bush's, George W. Bush's war in Afghanistan and George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Both wars that Bush and Cheney lied us into. Eight trillion dollars looted from the United States by these two wars, by the defense contractors involved with them, it, it, and you know, right at the front of that line, Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton. When Dick Cheney was running Halliburton, before, uh, back when he had been, uh, uh, George W. Bush had asked him to help him find somebody as his vice presidential nominee, because Dick Cheney had been chief of staff to Jerry Ford, as I recall, and you know, he, he knew his way, and he'd been, had, in fact, he'd been defense secretary for somebody. I think it was Jerry Ford also. Um, he knew his way around the White House, and he'd been a member of Congress for years and years. So Bush asked Cheney, you know, uh, who, who should I get for VP? Well, Cheney at that time was running Halliburton, and he had made this big bet that the government was going to bail out the companies that had been selling asbestos for years and years. And Dresser Industries had a huge asbestos liability. My dad was suing Dresser Industries because he got mesothelioma from asbestos. And so Dresser Industries was for sale for, a, for pennies on the dollar. And so Cheney had Halliburton buy them, thinking that the federal government would bail them out. And the federal bailout never happened. And so all of a sudden, Dresser Industries is like in a whole world of hurt, which means Halliburton's in a whole world of hurt. Halliburton is looking at the possibility of going bankrupt. So Cheney says to Bush, make me the vice president. And then, you know, and then as vice president, it's like, hey, let's have a war right away. And let's give one of the very first no-bid multi-billion dollar contracts to Halliburton. Eight trillion dollars looted from the United States. We could have had single-payer health care. We, we could have educated every kid in America who wants to go to trade school or college for free. We could have provided years of health care. We could have cut the cost of drugs in half. We could have ended homelessness in the United States. Eight trillion dollars looted from us because these two men wanted to get reelected and and lied us into a war to do it 
It's about $8,000 per man, woman, and child in America. Are you happy with the way that your money was spent? I'm not. I am, shall we say, dissatisfied. And I, I was just so pleased to see Joe Biden, President Biden yesterday, just tell the truth. You know, Jerry Ford never said a word. Lawrence O'Donnell's actually been doing a really good job. He's the only person I've, I've seen who's talking about this story. That he went back and he looked at all the film footage, you know, uh, of Jerry, uh, uh, Jerry Ford's presidency. Jerry Ford, of course, ended our involvement in Vietnam. And about two years later, the government fell. But he got us out of Vietnam. He never gave a speech. He never said, I did the right thing. He never rationalized it. He never, and, and I hurt him badly, politically. And I think Biden is doing this right. He's saying, you know, we made a mistake. This war should have, should have ended at least 10 years ago. He's not going as far as I am. The war never should have started. But, you know, hey, you got to do what you got to do when you're in politics, I suppose. But he's saying, you know, this war should have ended a decade ago. He's telling the truth, or at least a, a large chunk of the truth, which is pretty awesome in my book. Back with your thoughts the Tom Hartman program, helping you win the water cooler wars. Wendy in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Wendy, what's up? Hi. Um, I have been listening to your program today and um, some of the comments regarding the religious right and the Taliban and so forth. And um, it's a subject I've been studying for a while because I can see how um, Many of the views of the religious right are affecting our governing process. And I'm in the process, I've almost finished reading a book by John Barry called Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, hmm. Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty. Mm -hmm. And it takes, um, it takes these issues back to where they got started in the first place, um, back to 16, the 1600s, um, King James I and King Charles I, and, um, and the, the people that immigrated here from England in order to, per, to escape persecution, but then began persecution here. Right. And I just, I just wanted to put a shout out for this story because it, it really enriches um, the story of Roger Williams really enriches our understanding of how our own personal liberties came to be. He was kind of the starting point, and I just thought it would be interesting to add I'll that into to, your to conversation. Wendy, thank you for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. In the Tom Harmon University Book Club today, we're reading from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. This is from the prologue titled A New Door. Midway through the 20th century, two unusual new molecules, organic compounds with a striking family resemblance, exploded upon the West. In time, they would change the course of social, political, and cultural history as well as the personal histories of the millions of people who would eventually introduce them to their brains. As it happened, the arrival of these disruptive chemistries coincided with another world historical explosion, that of the atomic bomb. There were people who compared the two events and made much of the cosmic synchronicity 
extraordinary new energies that have been loosed upon the world. Things would never quite be the same. The first of these molecules was an accidental invention of science. Lysergic acid diethylamide, commonly known as LSD, was first synthesized by Albert Hoffman in 1938, shortly before physicists split the atom of uranium for the first time. Hoffman, who worked for the Swiss pharmaceutical firm Sandoz, had been looking for a drug to stimulate circulation, not a psychoactive compound. It wasn't until five years later when he accidentally ingested a minuscule quantity of the new chemical that he realized he had created something powerful, at once terrifying and wondrous. The second molecule had been around for thousands of years, though no one in the developed world was aware of it. Produced not by a chemist, but an inconspicuous little brown mushroom, this molecule, which would come to be known as psilocybin, had been used by indigenous peoples of Mexico and Central America for hundreds of years as a sacrament, called Tioanatical by the Aztecs, or Flesh of the Gods. The mushroom was brutally suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church after the Spanish conquest and driven underground. In 1955, 12 years after Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD, a Manhattan banker and amateur mycologist named R. Gordon Wasson sampled the magic mushroom in the town of Huajalta de Jimenez in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. Two years later, he published a 15-page account of the, quote, mushrooms that cause strange visions, end quote, in Life magazine, marking the moment when news of a new form of consciousness first reached the general public. Parentheses. In 1957, knowledge of LSD was mostly confined to the community of researchers and mental health professionals. People would not realize the magnitude of what had happened for several more years, but history in the West had shifted. The impact of these two molecules is hard to overestimate. The advent of LSD can be linked to the revolution in brain science that begins in the 1950s when scientists discovered the role of neurotransmitters in the brain. That quantities of LSD measured in micrograms could produce symptoms resembling psychosis, inspired brain scientists to search for the neurochemical basis of mental disorders previously believed to be of psychological origin. At the same time, psychedelics found their way into psychotherapy, where they were used to treat a variety of disorders, including alcoholism, anxiety, and depression. For most of the 1950s and early 60s, many in the psychiatric establishment regarded LSD and psilocybin as miracle drugs. The arrival of these two compounds is also linked to the rise of the counterculture during the 1960s and perhaps especially to its particular tone and style. For the first time in history, the young had a rite of passage all their own, the acid trip. Instead of folding the young into the adult world, as rites of passage have always done, this one landed them in a country of the mind few adults had any idea even existed. The effect on society was, to put it mildly, disruptive. Yet by the end of the 1960s, the social and political shockwaves unleashed by these molecules seemed to dissipate. The dark side of psychedelics began to receive tremendous amounts of publicity, bad trips, psychotic breaks, flashbacks, suicides. And beginning in 1965, the exuberance surrounding these new drugs gave way to moral panic. As quickly as the culture and the scientific establishment had embraced psychedelics, they now turned sharply against them. By the end of the decade, psychedelic drugs, which had been legal in most places, were outlawed and forced underground. At least one of the 20th century's two bombs appeared to have been diffused. Then something unexpected and telling happened. Beginning in the 1990s, well out of the view of most of us, a small group of scientists, psychotherapists, and so-called psychonauts 
believing that something precious had been lost from both science and culture, resolved to recover it. Today, after several decades of suppression and neglect, psychedelics are having a renaissance. A new generation of scientists, many of them inspired by their own personal experience of the compounds, are testing their potential to heal mental illnesses such as depression, anxiety, trauma, and addiction. Other scientists are using psychedelics in conjunction with new brain imaging tools to explore the links between brain and mind, hoping to unravel some of the mysteries of consciousness itself. One good way to understand a complex system is to disturb it and then see what happens. By smashing atoms, a particle accelerator forces them to yield their secrets. By administering psychedelics in carefully calibrated doses, neuroscientists can profoundly disturb the normal waking consciousness of volunteers, dissolving the structures of the self and occasioning what can be described as a mystical experience. How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Diane in Etowah, North Carolina. Hey, Diane, what's on your mind today? Hi. You were talking about verbiage and what um, pro-life people might understand. Mm -hmm. A couple of times when I have spoken with pro-life friends of mine, I just say to them, you are not pro-life. You are pro-birth. Whatever happens after the birth, you could care less. It's true. I mean, Texas has not expanded Medicaid. And they look at me for a minute, and I can see the wheels going yeah. in their brain thinking about that. Yeah. Now, I can't say that that's ever changed anybody's mind, but it seemed to have an effect. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Okay. Well, you said it very well. Thank you, Diane, and, and good on you. Uh, Judith in Boston. Hey, Judith, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I never hear this issue. But this, to me, after listening to you today talk about all the strategies the Republicans are running out of to keep their party going, I was told by an African-American politician that the real reason that this effort is being um, done by the Republicans is, be is because of white supremacy. The white population is going down. And uh, for, a, a, you know, a number of years, this has been noticed by Republicans and they you know, it's gone straight through the party. The, you know, the ministers propagate this now. And, I mean, I, I never had an abortion. I don't have to uh, do all this politically to practice my beliefs. I can just do what I feel like is right for me. But the way this got politicized is what I'm talking about. Yeah. And what's particularly ironic about it is that it's going to be white women who can afford to get a, an airplane ticket out of Texas and get an abortion and the white supremacists who are all freaked out about you know the the number of white people in the united states is not going down it's going it's it, the percentage of the of white people relative to people of color has has changed but you know there's uh, all populations have yeah, been growing that's, that's what i meant but yeah i, yeah, I, I, I know that and, but 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 what's so weird is like and this it's almost like you know somebody telegraphed this to the white supremacists who are also the anti-abortion freaks is that you know there's there's going to be you know if this works the way that they're planning on it the white women are going to find they're going to get their abortions and you know women of color who are lower income they're not going to be able to and that's you know that's kind of the opposite of what the white supremacists are talking about doing
It's, it's a weird little nuance, but anyhow, Judith, thank you for the call. Thank you for bringing it up. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll continue our conversation. Same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It really does require all of us to participate. That includes you. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 